let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. Thank you, Lord God, for this morning. Thank you for the beautiful weather. I know it's going to get a little warm today, but we thank you that we can be in this place and stay cool. We thank you for your goodness. And Lord, I pray as we give you this time, may you open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to your word. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit speak to us. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if I asked you this already, but I might have. Uh, How many of you recall playing hide-and-go-seek as a kid? Okay, almost everybody. How many of you played hide-and-seek with your parents? Raise your hands. Okay, very little, very little. How many of you parents played hide-and-seek with your kids? All right, that was kind of weird. More parents raise their hands than kids raise their hands. All right, one of the most thrilling games to play as a kid is hide-and-seek, right? Wasn't that fun? Wasn't it thrilling? The most thrilling part of playing hide-and-seek is that anticipation of being found, right? And the fun about being a parent and playing that with your young kids is that thrill they have of hiding and their anticipation of being found, right? It's fun when you go and you say, you count to whatever, right? And they they noisily go hide somewhere and you pretend you don't know where they are. So, okay, ready or not, here I come. And as you get closer to them, what do you hear? I, don't, I can't giggle. I don't, I don't know how to giggle, but picture giggling, right? You hear them giggling. You see them fidgeting, right? You see sh- like blankets move or furniture move, right? They're doing it because they're so excited about hiding, but that anticipation of being found is just so fun. Right? So it's a great kick out of doing that. But you know when the fun kind of dissipates when your kids get a little older? Because when they get a little older, they're perfectly fine not being found, <laughs> being quiet, and being alone. In fact, you know the thrill is gone when they just fall asleep where they are, right? That's happened too. You're like, they get so good at hiding, and then you get, you're older too, you're like, all right, I'm going to do something while they're hiding, right? Because they're not excited, you're not excited, they're falling asleep, and so the thrill kind of gets gone a little bit in hide-and-seek, right? A not-so-fun type of hiding, especially when you're kids, is when you do something wrong. How many of you remember a time when you did something wrong as a kid and you ran and hid, right? I remember when I was a little kid, I think it was when I broke a window, we had a big front window, and I didn't do it on purpose, but as soon as I broke, I, I think I just ran around the corner. I didn't really have any place to hide, right? But a common response when you're a kid, when you do something wrong, is you run and hide. You don't want to be seen. It's kind of interesting that this response doesn't seem to go away as you get older. Running and hiding is still a common response for us when we know we've done something wrong. Except we call it something different, right? 
We call this run and hiding escape, right? Avoidance, denial, suppression, or we just call it moving on, right? When we do something wrong, we just put more adult words to the phrase hide and go seek. Today's passage, we're going to look at where that strategy, the ways of we dealing with sin or things when we do something wrong, where it all began, that whole response of run and hide from. So we're going to take a look at that today. And uh, where did I put? There it is. Okay. So let me back up a little bit and give you some review in case you weren't here with us and you haven't been with us for a couple weeks. We moved on to chapter two and into chapter three. And two weeks ago, we began looking at how God's provision, the provision God gave man and woman in the garden, right? And then we looked at the decision they made last week, the decision to eat of the fruit. And we'll review that in a second. Today, we're going to look at the immediate consequences of their decision. Later in the next week, and maybe even to stretch it to two weeks, we're going to look at the aftermath of the decision. The aftermath that you and I continue to deal with from the aftermath of their decision, okay? So the provision we've been looking at the last couple weeks, and we saw how the Lord God gave the man and the woman freedom to enjoy to their heart's desire what he provided, right? He created the tree, the fruit of the trees and said, Eat to your heart's desire. And we talked about how that sounds like a great idea. Buffet was a God-given idea, so praise God for that. He said, enjoy all the blessings that I provided with only one restriction. Verse 17, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat from it you shall surely die. And we talked about how while some may look at that and think that God was being unfair or unjust for creating this tree of knowledge of good and evil. But I mentioned that we need to remember what else God provided for them. And that he created specifically the tree of life. And so we looked at the three things that we know of the tree of life in these passages. One, that the tree of life was located in the middle of the garden. So the location was not vague. It wasn't a hide, a go go try to find the tree. It was right there in the middle of the garden. And that also that God did not restrict the man or the woman to eat of the tree. And thirdly, we see later in chapter 3, verse 22, that the tree would cause them to live forever. Thus the name, the tree of life. So there's two specific trees named in the garden. One tree represented life. One tree represented the knowledge of good and evil or represented death. And only one tree was restricted. So last week we looked at their decision. So that was the scenario. That was the provision. Let's look at the decision. In chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from the tree of, or from, eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. 
Verse 4, And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit. I was going to bring an apple and bite into it for effect. But I was like, you know, it's going to take me a while to chew on it. I got to move on. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So we looked at how the serpent questions the woman indeed. Has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And we looked at how last week the woman's response was not a good one. The woman was unable to identify the trick question and was unable to provide a good answer. How many of you all had those kind of, we've all had those tests before in school, right? Where the teacher gives you a trick question, right? The, the, the point of a trick question is to test you to see if you could identify the trick or the truth in the question. And if you can't identify the truth in the question, the tricky part in the question, you most likely will not be able to give the right answer, right? I used to do that with my students. I gave them trick questions because I kind of delighted in that. Maybe I was like the serpent in this situation, right? To test to see, can you identify the truth in the question? The reason why it's a trick question is because God did not say that they could not eat from any tree of the garden. He said you can eat of any tree except one. But here was Eve's response. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Now God did not restrict them from touching the fruit of the tree. We don't see that specified in, the, in what he said to Adam, right? To the man. Let alone the tree in the middle of the garden, Right? Because if we looked in chapter 2, God specified in the middle of the garden was the tree of life. So the woman either did not get the correct information or she kind of mixed it up a little bit, right? How many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, if you're here with us last week, we established that her husband could not have ever miscommunicated valuable information to his wife because husbands never do that, right? We established that? All right, you know the sarcasm, right? Okay. And if you're just watching in the future, if you're not even watching the video, I'm being sarcastic, right? You know, husbands never miscommunicate to their wives. That just never happens. Okay. Whatever the reason the woman was deceived... And while the serpent spoke to both the man and the woman, the man was apparently content with his wife being the spokesperson, right? The serpent's talking to the wife, the husband was there, the man was there, but he was perfectly content with just having, watching this dialogue take place. He was perfectly fine standing in the background and letting the wife do all the talking. Husbands, that never happens, right? You see that all the time, right? <laughs> the wife's doing the talking, and the husband's standing back. Hey, 
This is your deal, not mine, right? Since she was the first to eat, part of me wonders if, again, I'm speculating, if he waited to see what would happen to the woman. He's like, hmm, let's see what happens. She takes of the fruit. She takes a bite of it, must have enjoyed it, and gave it. And maybe he thought, hmm, well, nothing happened to her. I guess I can eat it too, right? Notice what the serpent said in the conversation. You surely shall not die, for God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's amazing how Satan's strategy remains the same, right? Temptation is the means, but rebellion is the goal. His strategy is this one. Temptation is the means, but the goal is rebellion against God. And we looked at the, the serpent's conversation with the woman and the man being there as well. Question God's word. Did God really say that? Question his intentions. Question his character. All to distort God's truth with deception, right? To get us to think, hmm, did God really say that? And I mentioned last week that we probably have had this conversation in our minds many times, if not with other people specifically. Well, did God really say that? Does God really want the best for me? Because if he wanted the best for me, he would give me these things. Is God really good? Because if God was really good, my life would be a lot better. We have these, these thoughts and these conversations in our head. Well, this isn't the only thing we could relate to in the story. Let's look at the immediate consequences of their decision, this life and death decision. Verse 7, then the eyes of them both, of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Come out, come out, wherever you are, right? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Oops. Then the, the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Again, we'll look at the aftermath of this next week. Well, let's look at the immediate consequences. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loin coverings. 
Their eyes were open. In other words, they immediately understood what they did was wrong. In most cases, we immediately understand when we've done something wrong, right? And this, we learn this, we, this, this happens all the way from the beginning in childhood, right? When a child does something wrong, they immediately know, right? You can see it in their eyes, right? The look in their eyes. Even our puppy, when he knows he did something wrong, you can see it in his eyes, the puppy dog eyes, right? How many of you have a good, guilty puppy dog eyes look? Let me see. Anyone have any? Any? You do? All right. Any, anyone have a good one? Let me see. Any? Any? Anyone want to convince me? Some kids are really good at that. But see, you can see it in a kid's eyes when they know they did something wrong. Guilt and shame hits us immediately. They have that look of, are you going to punish me? Right? We learn the immediate response to evil, to sin, or wrong is guilt and shame. And this is not a bad thing, right? Feeling guilt and shame is not a bad thing because this helps us recognize when we did something wrong. And this continues until people learn or they've accepted or they've given themselves into what they do as wrong and then they see the evil or the bad or the sin as good and the good as bad or evil, right? Right? We feel guilt and shame and that helps us to identify until the point where we say, you know what, I'm just going to do whatever I want. So the evil turns into good, the good turns into evil, and they just embrace what they do. Now, we don't, want us to, we don't want to use shame as a tool for discipline for our kids, right? That's not something we want to do. Something, something we don't want to intend to do. We, we end up doing that sometimes. But we don't want to use shame as a tool of discipline, right? That's not something we want to do. But children, if never corrected properly, what ends up happening If they don't learn the value of guilt and shame and turning it into correction, they become calloused to the wrong, the wrongdoing to guilt, right? So maybe you've seen some of these kids out in the playground or whatever it is. I'm not going to say it's your kid, all right, and like that. But you see some kid and they come up to a kid and just pop them. Well, that wasn't a good, pop them, right? And there's no guilt on their face. Probably because they did it to their little brother or little sister at home, right? And like, no punishment there, so I can pop another kid again. But see, that becomes our immediate response when we do something wrong. The sense of guilt, the sense of shame. But notice this happened after the man ate the fruit. Right? It wasn't immediate for the woman. She ate it and looked at him like, oh my gosh, what happened? Here, take that and you eat it. It happened, the new knowledge was realized after both ate of the fruits. They sinned together, and they faced the consequences together. In the last part of chapter 2, we're told, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, right? When God created man and woman, he created them naked, and they said, 
the chapter 2 ended, and they were not ashamed. But now, the first thing they do is cover the lower part of their bodies with fig leaves. Their private parts with fig leaves. That word for loin coverings is used, other used in Scripture as girdle, the belt, the loin cover. So the covering of the lower part of the body. It's interesting, right? There was nothing evil about their nakedness because God created them that way, right? God created them without clothes. And what did he say when he created them? He saw that it was very good, right, after the end of all creation. So there wasn't something necessary in the beginning evil about their nakedness. It's interesting that nakedness, so why was that an immediate response? Nakedness has come to represent, right, vulnerability, right? Complete honesty, maybe you use that word, the bare truth, right, we've used that. So vulnerability represents vulnerability, complete honesty, Intimacy, right? Nakedness has represented intimacy. But it's interesting, it's also come to be synonymous with what? Boastfulness, rebelliousness, and shame. Right? You look at today's society, the boastfulness of nakedness, clothes are shrinking, rebelliousness, In this moment, their nakedness seems to embody and represent all of the above here, isn't it? Vulnerability, honesty, intimacy, but then rebelliousness, shame. Our immediate response when we do something wrong is what? We try to cover up and hide. When we become desensitized to what we do is wrong, what do we end up doing? As sinful creatures, we end up boasting about it, don't we? Isn't that true? Right? Our immediate response when we do something wrong, we try to run, we try to hide, we try to cover it up. But if we do it long enough and more times, then what do we end up doing? We end up being that, that being our, our, our badge of pride, our boastfulness. What are some examples? Drinking, promiscuity, all these kind of things, Right? We boast about it. So the man and the woman, they cover themselves. And they also do another familiar thing, something that's familiar to us. Right in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which is like to be toward the the early part of the evening day. That's likely to be the part of the day. It's kind of interesting to speculate on the intimate fellowship the man and the woman must have had with God in the garden. That they recognized the Lord walking in the garden. It wasn't an elephant. An elephant has a certain sound. Maybe it wasn't a dog. It's kind of funny. In, in, In our house... I can recognize who's walking by their footsteps, the sound of their footsteps. I know when it's Michaela, I know when it's Josiah, I know when it's Jamie, right? I can recognize it. It's kind of interesting. They recognize the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Could, this be hearing, could they be hearing Jesus walking in the garden? That's, that's an interesting thought, right? It's also, it would, I was thinking about this, wouldn't it be interesting that 
If the time of day that man and woman ate of the fruit from the tree is around the same time Jesus died on the tree for our sins, right? Just thought that might be an interesting thought. But they recognized the Lord was nearby. And the response completely relatable. What they did, they hid from God in the middle of the trees. It's interesting, the word here translated for among the trees is the same word used, referenced in chapter 2, verse 9. Talking about the location of the tree of life being in the middle of the garden, midst of the garden. So it's interesting that they hid in the midst of the trees. And I, I, it made me kind of speculate. I thought, you know, wouldn't it be a very poetic, powerful scene that the man and the woman, after they did something wrong, they hid in the middle of the two trees. I thought that would be an interesting scene. I'm speculating. It'd be, interesting. It'd be very poetic that they would hide between the two options, life and death, obedience, disobedience, knowledge, good and evil. And right there, they're in the middle of it. But of course, like a young child playing hide and seek, right? Just that little child playing hide and seek. The man and woman could not hide from God. Verse 9, then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And unlike the playful scene of hide and seek, when God calls out to the man, I bet you that man, the man was not giggling. He might have been shivering out of fear he saw the leaves moving from the fear not giggling right does god know where the man and the woman are of course of course he knows but the first step in confronting sin is saying to god here i am here i am god always knows where we are god always knows what we've done but we must be willing to come out of our hiding. Notice God calls out to the man. This should be our first hint that he's going to hold the man with a higher sense of accountability for this situation. And the man said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden. See, notice who's the spokesperson now. The man is the spokesperson here. I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, does God know what the man or woman did? Of course, of course. The second step in confronting sin is confession. God knew that the only cause for them to feel something was wrong was for them to commit the only thing that they can do was wrong. I'll repeat that. God knew the only cause for them to feel something was wrong was for them to commit the one thing he told them not to do. Eat of the tree that he commanded them not to eat. This was the one act of disobedience that was made available to them, right? So the man did what any man would do, right? He took full responsibility for what he did. He protected his wife and he owned it. The man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, 
she gave me from the tree and I ate. Oh, wait, yeah, that's right. That man did what many men have done in, the, in history. Threw their wife right under the bus. Right? Not literally, if you don't know that figure of speech. Okay? <laughs> he didn't literally throw the woman under the bus. But he points the finger at the woman. She did it. It's her fault. How many times do we do this? When confronted with something we've done wrong, our first response, blame somebody else. It's my spouse. It's their fault. It's my kids. <laughs> it's their fault. It's my boss's fault. It's my coworker's fault. It's the president's fault. It's the person that cut me off. It's their fault. That's often our immediate response. But you see, the man is doing something even more evil than just pointing to Eve. Before he does that, who is he pointing his finger at? He's not just displacing blame unto her. He first points his finger at God. He puts the blame on the one who gave her to him. You know the woman that you gave me? You're the one who said I needed a helper? The helper? You gave her to me. I've seen this many times, you know, as the dean and as a parent, right? When you're questioning a student and they've done something wrong, they think just because you weren't physically there, they didn't see you physically there, they won't know what they did was wrong, right? Before we get too judgmental on the man, we need to consider, right, is our response so different from the man and the woman? We get into a series of bad decisions, we get involved in things we're not supposed to. We question God's judgment. We question God's intention. We allow one temptation after another lead us astray. Then when things get so bad, we turn to God and complain, why did you, give, why did you do this to me? Why did you give me this? Why did you give me this life? What did you do? It's your fault. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The woman follows the pattern and blames the serpent for being deceived. So what happened here? Let's look at the immediate consequences of the man and woman, what they experienced. One, they immediately understood good and evil, which led to disobedience to God, right? They immediately felt shame. And they immediately felt guilt. They didn't just cognitively know good and evil existed but they experienced, they now experienced good and evil. Was there something magical, magically evil about this tree? What's so wrong with the knowledge of good and evil? Maybe you've asked that, right? What was so wrong about this tree? Did the tree cause the man and woman to undergo some kind of transformation like you see in the Disney cartoons and stuff? When they eat something, all of a sudden they turn something into either evil or good, right? Did that happen? 
Did their insides turn all black, right? <laughs> That's the knowledge of good and evil. All of a sudden, all turned all black, and they became sinful. Well, it's interesting that the knowledge of good and evil is not evil in itself. The knowledge is not evil in itself. Why do I say that? After all, God has knowledge of good and evil. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 22, we'll get to that next week, then the Lord God said, after he pronounced the judgments against the serpent, Eve, and Adam, he says, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So let's compare these two trees. The tree of life, tree of knowledge, good and evil, TKG&E. That's not a, a, like a utilities company, right? That's tree of knowledge, good and evil. Look at the two trees. You live forever or you face death. One is not restricted. One is restricted. One ends up being a sign of obedience or disobedience. One receives knowledge of good and evil. Interesting, both represents to be like God. In what ways was man and woman like God? It's interesting because when God created Adam and Eve, he created them in his image and his likeness. The only way for the man and woman to know evil was to willingly commit evil themselves. And the evil they committed was allowing the temptation of selfish pride to lead them to disobey God. The difference between them and God was that certainly God cannot commit evil. He is holy. He is the definition of what is good. And I mentioned last week, I don't personally think that the restriction of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was about having evil fruit or eating a poison apple. It wasn't like something in the fruit was poisonous in there. And then like they ate it and it's just like, you know, like bad fruit or something. And it just makes your insides all weird. Because the moment the man and woman disobeyed God, they knew it. They had the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you notice, I mainly refer to Adam and Eve as the man and the woman. And that's accurate textual text, it's accurate to the text. But I also do that intentionally because sometimes we often blame Adam and Eve. Man, it was Adam and Eve's fault. And understandably so, right? They made a pretty bad decision. Ruined all of us, right? But we could place ourselves there, too. Blaming Adam and Eve doesn't help our story at all in our life. I think they really represent the choice that we all face, life or death, faith, unbelief, obedience, or rebellion. Now, I understand some may think, okay, you're getting your theological hats on. You're like, hmm, how does this sound theologically? We'll get to that in a future message. But I bring that up because God is often criticized for creating the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Isn't that unfair? Isn't that unjust of God? And I mentioned last week, I don't believe death was God's intention or desire for man and woman to disobey. 
That may be more controversial than uh, my stance on gender or sexuality or abortion or anything. I tend to believe that God created according to his nature as a relational, loving being. And these qualities require willful, willful choices by morally capable beings. And once they chose, the man and woman chose to disobey God and give in to temptation, the knowledge of good and evil passed down to every single human. With the knowledge of good comes the knowledge of evil. With the knowledge of obedience comes the knowledge of disobedience. And with this, with this comes the compulsion to sin. We are all vulnerable and capable and tend to do what we want to do. We'll be looking at the aftermath, so if, you, if you're, you're, you're kind of like, all right, I'm going to get my theological, I'm getting ready to talk to Pastor Mike after the service, I'm going to have some long questions. We'll talk about the aftermath, even theologically of it, in the next two messages. But notice, and I'll wrap this up with this, even in their banishment, which we'll see in the coming weeks, they are not banished from God. They're not banished, they're, they're not banished for their punishment. They're banished for their protection and well-being. We will see that even after their judgment and punishment, what I mean is like, yeah, that is their consequence for the decision they made. But we'll see that even after their judgment, God offers hope and the theme of life still continues. I hope we can all understand that we can relate to Adam and Eve's guilt. We all fall under it. We can all experience also God's mercy. Because the first step in restoration is saying to God, here I am. We all, fall, we all have that knowledge of good and evil. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And the first step in restoration before God is saying to God, here I am. Because we often react like Adam and Eve. We want to cover ourselves, cover ourselves in our shame and hide away to hope to never be found by God. But in reality, while we're hiding from God, the reality is we so desperately want to be found by God. Just like that kid who hides. And maybe initially they love the thrill of hiding, but they want to be found. And the first step can be the most difficult, but instead of covering it up or minimizing it, we need to be willing to be vulnerable before God and say, God, here I am. We need to stop running. We need to stop hiding. The second step in restoration is confession. A, re a regrettable decision is so easily made, right? And it could, be so, it could feel so hard to overcome. You feel like, I'm so far deep, my life can't get better. I can't overcome the decisions I made. 
but running and hiding will never be the route to restoration. And the Lord's forgiveness and restoration begins with saying, Lord Jesus, here I am. I did this. I did this. I need your forgiveness. I need to be forgiven. The steps are easy but can feel so extremely difficult, right? So hard, even painful. But we must recognize what we did was wrong or else we'll continue to repeat it, desensitize from it, and next thing you know it, we'll be justifying it, calloused from it, and embracing it. I can't wait till the next message because you don't like ending in a, 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 like a, a down note, right? But again, this is all to lead to restoration. There is hope and forgiveness in the Lord. It is out of his kindness that Adam and Eve did not die right there on the spot. But he had a plan of hope, a plan of life for all of us. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we come before you, Lord, and As easy as it is to do something that we shouldn't have done, commit a sin, disobey you, dishonor you, it was just as easy to run and hide. But Lord, I pray that your spirit work in our hearts, Lord, if we are running and hiding from something that we have done, we're trying to cover it up from you, Lord, I pray that you instill in us a conviction to come out of hiding, to stop running, and say, Lord, here I am. I've been doing this. I need your forgiveness. I need your forgiveness, Lord. If we confess our sins... You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Lord. We thank you. We want to receive your forgiveness, Lord. Thank you for your kindness and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.